0: Welcome to Measured Justice, where we offer expert perspectives on important criminal justice issues in our communities and in our country.
1: We believe knowledge is the most important tool we have to address the problems confronting the criminal justice system.
0: At Measured Justice, we share expert research and analysis to help bridge the gap between what we know about criminal justice
1: and what we actually do on the ground.
0: We invite the smartest minds to the table to discuss the challenges of crime and punishment in America today.
1: So that everyone walks away better informed.
0: Join us for Measured Justice.
2: This is Ashley Otto, Director of the Academy for Justice at Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law and you're listening to Measure Justice. May is Mental Health Month, and on this episode, we will be talking about mental health in criminal justice, which will be introduced by my co-host today, Eric Luna, founder of the Academy for Justice, and the Amelia D. Lewis Professor of Constitutional and Criminal Law at Arizona State University.
0: Thank you, Ashley. The Academy for Justice is a criminal justice center at Arizona State University's Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law that aims to connect research with policy reform and to share expert voices with policymakers and the public. On today's episode, we're fortunate to be joined by Stephen Morse, the Ferdinand Wakeman Hubble Professor of Law, Professor of Psychology and Law and Psychiatry, and Associate Director of the Center for Neuroscience and Society at the University of Pennsylvania Law School, and Margot Schlanger, the Wade H. and Doris M. McCree, Collegiate Professor of Law at the University of Michigan Law School. You can find their full biographies on our website, academyforjustice.org. Thank you both for joining us today.
2: Thank you, Eric. Professor Schlanger, let's start with you. I want to begin with just a bit of background, if you don't mind. Several years ago, in your chapter on prisoners with disabilities, you noted about half of all individuals in prison and 60% of all individuals in jail suffer from mental illness symptoms. It's been said that jails and prisons have been the largest mental health facilities in the country as America has struggled to effectively treat mentally ill in an age of increased incarceration. Some think that the run up from the 1970s and 1990s in prison and jail population was the result of trans institutionalization, the effect of housing people with mental illness in jails and prisons instead of in mental hospitals. Do you agree with this view? And what should our listeners know about this critically important intersection of mental health and criminal justice?
1: So thanks so much for having me. I should just start with that. Um, it's, a, it's a real pleasure to be here. I, I don't think that it is the case that there's been a simple transfer of people from psychiatric hospitals and mental health institutions into jails and prisons. That's not, the populations aren't the same um, for one thing, Lots of women were in those facilities and they have not mostly gone to jail and prison, just for example. What is certainly the case, however, even though there hasn't been this direct one for one, oh, this is somebody who would once have been in a psych hospital and now instead they're in jail. What we do have is um, a general lack of community-based services that are in a non-criminal justice um, mode that can help people Manage their mental illness in a way that does not involve them in the criminal justice system. And that is clearly the case.
0: Professor Morris, uh, mental disorders among criminal defendants affect every stage of the criminal process, Um, as you well know, from basic investigation issues to competence to uh, culpability uh, to sentencing and imprisonment and and even to execution. Uh, Often those with mental disorders are treated a bit specially, sometimes they are not. Um, In your paper that you wrote for uh, our symposium a few years ago, you gave uh, what I think is a magisterial overview of the uh, issues raised by mental disease and defects in the criminal justice system, and also provided some very specific proposals on changes that you thought the system could adopt and would make a difference uh, in people's lives and in the criminal justice system. That was five years ago. Five years plus, what do you think uh, with regards to the progress we've made or the regression that has occurred? And uh, do you still believe that those uh, those goals, those objectives uh, can be met by the United States?
3: Like Margo, I'd like to thank you for having me. Uh, before I turn to your question, Eric, may I add just one thing to what uh, Margo had to say, which is that I agree with everything she said, every last word of it, and would simply add that the deinstitutionalization movement for mental hospitals, which began in earnest in the 1950s and really gathered, Stephen, in the 1960s, was supposed to offer the community services that have never been offered, as Margot correctly says. So what I like to say about deinstitutionalization is it hasn't failed, it hasn't been tried, not yet, not really, only half of it, which was essentially to empty out the mental hospitals and not to do the second half, which is then to provide adequate community services. All right, have we made much progress? First, we have not made much progress in psychiatry and psychology and basic treatment methodologies since five years ago. And until we do, I think it's gonna be very, very hard to affect much change within the criminal justice system. In half the local and county jails in the United States, where a very high percentage of people suffer from mental disorder, a somewhat smaller percentage, but still a high percentage, suffer from major mental disorders, there are no, count them, zero mental health treatment resources, including no addiction or substance use related problem disorders at all, even though lots and lots of people have substance use problems, and lots and lots of people have major mental disorders. Now, within the the various processes in the criminal justice system, I still think the major problem is adequate representation of people with mental disorders. To the extent that they are not being treated fairly, there are some doctrinal changes that could be made, and I can give you one of my favorite examples uh, in a minute, but they rarely have the kind of first-class representation that they need if they're really going to prosecute their potential defenses or potential needs successfully. And until we're willing to make those services available, and notice most serious criminals are poor criminals, and therefore they can't afford to hire their own lawyers. They're at the mercy of public defenders who may be extremely skilled, but overworked and under-resourced. And in some places, it's panel lawyers who are with all due respect in general, no damn good. Uh, They're just not getting the representation. So if you look at something like, are you entitled to an expert at state expense? The eight Oklahoma line of cases. And the answer is yes, you are. But if you're poor, you don't get more than one bite of the apple. So if a state appointed person to help you, a state expert tries to help you and decides that maybe you're not entitled to a defense, you're cooked, where any, any defendant with means gets consultants report they don't like, they just look for the next consultant. And as a result, I think a lot of times these people are not getting the full adversarial benefits that they're entitled to.
0: As a, as a kind of follow-up to that, Um, You you wrote in a a recent symposium on uh, mens rea about a trilogy of Supreme Court cases, ones that you know well, and I think you may have been uh, uh, an amicus uh, brief signatory, at least on, on, on a couple of briefs in some of these cases. And in each of these cases, you saw the decisions as perhaps misguided and that the limitations should not be, they shouldn't have been adopted judicially, and they wouldn't be ones that you, as a policymaker, would adopt in the first instance. Could you tell us a little bit about those opinions, why they matter uh, to criminal justice today, and what you think should have been done, and what can be done now?
2: All right, well,
3: the the first and most egregious example, in my view, is the uh, Collar versus Kansas case, which held the Kansas adoption of the mens rea approach to legal insanity, which is not really an approach to legal insanity, it's just negation of the prima facie case, which requires a mens rea, that that was an adequate substitute for the insanity defense, I think was just misguided in the extreme because it betrays complete ignorance of how mental disorder affects behavior and serious crimes. Mental disorder doesn't prevent people from forming mens rea, it gives them a crazy reason to form mens rea. So my favorite example of that, and it's not a Supreme Court case, but it is my favorite example, is Andrea Yates, the Texas mother who drowned her five kids, Siri Adam, in a bathtub back, I guess it was in the 90s. Uh, she believed that she was corrupt and that she was corrupting her children. She delusionally believed that because she was corrupting them If she didn't kill them now, they would be uh, sent to hell, still innocent, but would be corrupted and sent to hell and tortured for all eternity by Satan. As a result, she decided to kill them now. Now, did she know that they were human beings? Yes. Did she know she was killing them? Yes. Did she know it was against the law of Texas? Yes. You know, in all these ways, she had complete mens rea, but she was, if you'll excuse me, Crazy. She suffered from a severe mental abnormality. She was way out of touch with reality. Her material motivation for doing these acts intentionally was completely disordered. And under collar against Kansas, she would be convicted of capital murder. And that is a ridiculous moral and legal outcome. Now, slightly to be distinguished is the one of the earliest of these cases is um, Egelhoff against Montana. Uh, Egelhoff raised the issue, if you're drunk out of your mind, and it's your own fault you're drunk out of your mind, you've been drinking quote unquote voluntarily, may you use how that voluntary intoxication affected your mental state to negate mens rea. And the Supreme Court said, a state can entirely exclude it if it wants to. That, I thought, was also morally misguided. I mean, it's one thing to get drunk. It's another thing to have the mens rea for a crime. Just because you intentionally get drunk doesn't mean you meant to kill people. And the question then becomes, if you kill somebody while blind drunk, should you be able to at least make an argument at trial that the mental disorder negated your mens rea, such as intent? And in that case, the physical evidence was overwhelming that the defendant, Mr. Egelhoff, was the killer. So, But at least one could see that there you're in that mental state of disordered thinking, whatever, sort of perception. It's your own fault. You got drunk. But then in Clark against Arizona, a case with very, very similar facts, where if Clark was to be believed when he assassinated a police officer in Flagstaff, Arizona, in full uniform, getting out of his cruiser, you know, with the cherry flashing on top like you see in the movies, and just assassinated this guy. He claimed he believed that the officer, his name was Moritz, was a space alien impersonating a police officer. Now, if we believe him, and there was lots of evidence that he suffered from paranoid schizophrenia, that he had delusions of that space aliens were coming to Earth to get him. If we believe him, he certainly did not intend to kill a human being and he didn't know it was a police officer. But the Supreme Court said, if a court wants to or a jurisdiction wants to, it can channel all evidence of mental disorder into the insanity defense, but can exclude it at the prima facie case. I'm sorry if you don't have the mens rea you didn't do the crime because it requires a mens rea. And further, it's just fundamentally unfair, especially because the mental disorder, unlike voluntary intoxication, is not the person's fault. So those are the three cases, and I think they were all way wrongly decided. Do you think there's
0: any chance that, uh, probably this court won't rethink that, uh, but is there a a possibility for legislative reform, or is that just well, Misguided
3: hope. There, there's been no rush to uh, abolish the insanity defense in any other jurisdiction. So the last state to abolish, I think, was the early 1990s. It's three decades later. There's no movement in that direction. So I don't you know. Those four states ought to legislatively reimpose an insanity defense. Now, to me, there is at least an argument that the Collar case didn't really permit constitutionally abolition of the insanity defense, which is that in Justice Kagan's majority opinion, she says that what Kansas had really done is to adopt the purely know what you're doing wing of McNaughton. That's what the mens rea approach really does. That's wrong by the way, but that is what she said. So arguably they haven't yet ever decided definitively that the insanity defense abolition, total abolition, is unconstitutional, but most people think it has been. Uh, uh,
0: Professor Morse was, uh, was referring, of course, to the monoton standard that had been adopted at the common law, right? That was the common yeah. law standard for insanity. And uh, before we go on, terrific comments. I wanted to see, um, uh, Margot, did you have any thoughts on that or or, or, or on, on the issues as to w- the standards that we had use for Uh, for mental uh, disease or defect, and um, maybe it's impact not just at trial, but then there are always uh, uh, downstream and upstream effects from having that as the trial standard.
1: Yeah, um, I I guess I have two thoughts. One is that those cases are, um, their approach is very familiar in tort law. And I think that just as we just heard, it's a real mistake to think. I I think they're actually mistaken in tort law as well in a variety of ways, but since that's not our topic, I won't go into how I think that one should deal with mental illness in in tort law, but at least in tort law, there's a loss to allocate. And the question is who should bear the loss, the person whose mental illness occasioned the loss or the person who suffered the loss. And so there's an argument that says, I don't care whether it was her fault or his fault or not, he's a better cost bearer than the innocent victim. But that is not what the criminal law does. And I think, I think that some of the ideas that Stephen was just talking about feel a little bit less outlandish because they're familiar from torts and they shouldn't feel less outlandish. They should continue to feel outlandish in the way that he said. So that's, I mean, that's I don't know if that's of, of much interest to anybody other than me, since I'm the torts professor who's you know present at this podcast, but but to me that's that's an observation. Another thing that feels important is this. And the category of people who who suffer in jails and prisons and whose crimes could have been avoided by a more humane more appropriate set of social policies is vastly larger than the number who are affected by various defenses even if one had a really muscular view about when those defenses apply and so i just want to point that out that even if all even even if even if we undid all those cases, even if we took the a, a quite expansionist view about criminal responsibility and how it should be excused in the situation of, of mental disorder, we would still have a lot of people whose crimes have a connection to their mental disorder in that if we were providing them appropriate supports they those those crimes could be handled in a different way. And those range from very minor crimes, you know, peeing in public say, or a disorderly conduct or stalking, or I mean, you know, quite, I mean, some of those, uh, stalking's not minor, but you know what I mean. Some of these are minor, some of them are less so. If people got the supports they needed to manage their mental health issues then we could have a very different situation and one where uh, a lot fewer people with mental illness would be in jail and prison.
0: It's kind of follow up to you both. I'm just wondering, uh, because strong comments by both, and they are in fact consistent in in an important way, which is the standard that we set um, has of course moral significance. It will be the value, it'll be the standard that at least ostensibly is, is heralded in court. But it also will have cast a shadow, and uh, the shadow includes not just the legal shadow, but the political shadow. So, so much of our public knowledge about mental health is distorted through the news media. Distorted in the sense that, in the uh, uh, in the in the old uh, saying, "If it bleeds, it leads," right? If it is more, if it is uh, more crazy, or whether something seems more bizarre, the more likely that it's something that will will run. Uh, uh, at the top of the news hour or on the front page, um, and that this has had some kind of distortive effect on the way that we would, might a rational system might be ordered to deal with mental health in criminal justice, given how large uh, of a of a a population uh, it affects. What are your thoughts about that? And is there any way out of that uh, that almost news loop connecting aberrational stories sometimes with a system and making changes based on those when in fact the reality is much different.
1: Maybe I'll start on that, although I I think that might be a question for both of us. I guess I want to quarrel with one piece of the frame of that, which you talked about mental health in the criminal justice system. And the, the thing that I'm trying to say is that we have made a political and social choice to think that manifestations of mental illness are appropriately addressed in the criminal justice system. And I don't mean to say that those manifestations aren't harmful, because sometimes they are, right? Sometimes they're not, but sometimes they are. But we have choices about as as a polity about how to deal with harm inflicted by some people on other people. And not all harm is channeled through the criminal justice system. And that's the right answer. Um, And I think that uh we need to it's very hard to ratchet down away from criminal responses but not impossible and i think that's the answer i don't think we should be talking about mental health in the criminal justice system as if all the mental health issues that are currently in the criminal justice system belong there some of them just need to exit out altogether. but what that has to do with media to be honest i don't feel like i have a lot of insight on I'm, i'm not i'm not sure you know, we don't we don't deal with wage theft through the criminal justice system, and is that because it's not in the media? I don't I don't really know. I don't I don't feel like I have a good grasp on an answer to your question about the press.
0: Fair point. Uh, I would use it as an example on this back to Stephen to get his thoughts. Uh, of course, the federal standard was entirely dictated by a single case, um, and so that's an example of it. There's also been changes that have occurred as a result of uh, of cases. There are also situations where, uh, for example, the Jeffrey Dahmer case, where the man was found to be sane, and I—it's almost recapsalacqued, or the the events speak for themselves. Um, you should do your long work. You should show your math on it, still, but nonetheless, it seems to speak for itself. And and so, Stephen, what are your thoughts on that? So you get a case like Clark, which is we know here in Arizona because it came out of Flagstaff. Um, uh, tell us uh, your thoughts on that, and the, and and uh, whether it matters in, 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 in the the public it may be getting a less than uh, 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 ideal or truthful view of the way that uh, 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 mental health and criminal
3: justice interact. Well, I think that because of this high salience of some cases that involve mental disorder, I think the public is probably more fearful of people with mental disorder than they need to be, uh, because severe mental disorder by itself is not much of a danger sign unless these people with severe mental disorder are using drugs. If they're both, co- if they're comorbid in that way, major mental disorder plus drugs, then they're going to be more dangerous. But that's also true of people who simply have uh, personality disorders and use drugs. So I'm not sure that that makes much of a difference. I'm with Margo on this one. I'm, I'm just not sure what the right answer is. But I also do think that the mental health system, uh, the, excuse me, the criminal justice system, is, as, as Margot just said, is not the appropriate place to handle a lot of mental health needs. It would be much better if they could be handled with social services in the community and in the like. And we know a lot of the risk factors are for criminality and could, with very sensible social policies, intervene in a non-heavy-ended way. Uh, but one thing to notice is the prison population is 83% serious crime now in the United States. These people aren't in, in uh, prison for seri- for non-serious stuff, as Margot described it, jaywalking, disorderly conduct, you know, stuff like that. That may end up in a local jail, maybe not, but that doesn't go to prison. Where we could make a difference is 17% of prisoners in maximum security nationwide are there for drug-related crimes. Now, they're not all drug addicts by any means, and many of them may have been plea bargained to a pure drug offense from something more serious, such as armed robbery. We don't know that, that. Some of these people may be quite violent, but most of them are there just for possession or a crime like that. And I see absolutely no reason to put people in prison for possession. I'd much rather use our resources in the community, to give them treatment availability in the community, and just free up more money for mental health generally.
1: I do want to emphasize that in some ways of thinking about it, that jails are very different than that, and that jails have a pretty high number of people who are in for fairly minor things. Now, this is less true on a snapshot than it is if you think about the number of people who are in jail in the course of a year, because the people who are there for minor things churn through, and so they're doing less time. And so, if you think about jail as uh, you know county and city facilities as housing, say six hundred thousand people, which in a in a sort of right this minute, that's a pretty good number to kind of have in your head. Six hundred thousand people um, uh, in the course of a year. They incarcerate 20, well, not 20 times. They have 20 times as many admissions as that. And they incarcerate between eight and 10 times as many people as that, because some of those people are going more than once. The minor offenders are churning through at a very fast clip, and the rate of mental disorder among the minor offenders is extraordinarily high. So if you think about the impact of jailing on populations of people with mental illness, not imprisonment, but jailing, you're talking about a really, really significant impact. And so if you could, as um, say my hometown of Ann Arbor is talking about doing, if you could stop arrests of people with mental illness in situations in which other services, in which services would, would be better, it's, you might not get at that many of the population of the long-term imprisoned population, but you will get at an extraordinarily large percentage of the people who are touched by jail incarceration in the course of a year. You will really get it, you'll get a lot of bang for the buck. And so I don't think Stephen will disagree with that, because I um but but perhaps he will. But I just want to make that point that it's not. Measurable by the percentage of people at any given moment. You have to think about it as, as a life cycle over the course of a year. Yeah, I, I totally and,
0: and just and, and I, Stephen, Stevenson, you can have a, have a word on this. I I, I they sound to me uh, uh, they're talking about two institutions that oftentimes are treated as one. And and
3: I, I I distinguished in my comments, and I really I really do agree entirely with Margo. Oh. It's absolutely true that. Uh, and in fact, I have I've proposed in writing that much of misdemeanor behavior ought to be decriminalized or at least diverted to people with mental illness. And what those folks need, though, however, we're going to do that is they need services in the community. Yes, so I, just, I agree with every word Margot said.
2: Yes, thank you both. And Professor Schlinger, I, I'd like to just kind of circle back on on this notion of you know, diverting and, and that the criminal justice system really isn't maybe the best place for all mental health issues. Um, one of the recent changes is, is the pop-up of mental health courts and diversion-based mental health programs. Can you give us just a little bit of background on those programs? Are, are these a solution or is it just uh, just a mirage?
1: Well, I don't want to call it a mirage, but I will say it's not my preferred solution. I think that, that heading people off at the path is an awful lot better than letting them get on on a path of problem of problematic behavior and then superintending them super closely for a while and and when they mess up hammering them and i think that um that is something that not all mental health courts do and all diversion programs do but it's a risk of of those programs and so i really much prefer to i mean if if if, if somebody made me the policy queen and nobody has made me the policy queen, but if somebody did, I would want to spend my energy first on not diversionary programs, but just support services. Um, And I think that would be better than getting people onto, than letting people stray into problematic behavior charging them, ar- arresting them, charging them, and then saying, oh, but we'll go easy on you as long as you can behave now. I think the same thing about drug courts, to be honest. And I think that both of these institutions run the risk. I don't wanna say wholesale they're terrible. I'm, I'm really not saying that, but they run the risk of misunderstanding the nature of the um, syndrome that is producing the problem they're trying to solve.
3: No, I agree with that entirely. Uh, it's, and I've, I've looked at the evidence for the efficacy of uh, these so-called problem courts, mental health and drug courts. And as far as I can tell, despite the fact that the people who work in both of these institutions are really true believers, uh, they think they are doing real good. First, it should be noted that they only address criminal behavior that is nonviolent. So that takes out a very wide range of offenders that might also have been ahead of time diverted prevented, whatever. And second of all, they're very liberty depriving. And third of all, as I said, they, they just don't, I don't think the evidence for efficacy is there, the empirical evidence. And so why are we spending all this money to run these courts? Now they've become so entrenched, I think there's no way to get rid of them at this point. I think just a sunk cost. Stephen, in
0: addition to being um, a leading legal scholar, you're also a trained psychologist. It seems like every year there are new, improved tools to diagnose, to prognosticate, and potentially to treat mental illness. Um, Some advancements have relied upon algorithms in in diagnoses. Um, I know that you've been heavily involved in uh, neuroscience and its implications or non-implications for criminal justice. Uh, In recent years, we've witnessed the development and use of even mental health apps, uh, which try to extend the availability of treatment and maybe even risk assessment. Uh, uh, tools. How do you see these developments impacting criminal courts and criminal defendants?
3: Well, to the extent that mental disorder plays a role in criminal behavior, if we have better treatments and people are offered these services on a voluntary basis and and done humanely, then we would cut down a lot of the mental disorder-related criminal behavior. Now, some people are both mad and bad to use the locution. They may be severely mentally disordered, but that's not why they're committing crimes. You can be paranoid about one thing and and rob banks for a living for another. Uh, But in many, many cases, when people are severely disordered, especially, uh, their mental disorder is going to play at least some role in the practical reasoning that leads to their criminal behavior. So if we could treat mental disorder more effectively, great. the problem is we're not very good at it even now. And despite some of the advances you've talked about, Eric, I don't think we're much farther along. And in fact, in a recently published book by arguably our greatest historian of psychiatry of the United States, Andy Skull of um, University of California, San Diego, called Desperate Remedies. This book is just out. He goes through what's been happening in psychiatry between let's say 19, 1800 and the present. And we haven't come very far. And Tom Insull, who is head of the National, Institution, National Institute of Mental Health for at least a decade, I believe, has also just recently published a book saying we're not making much progress, but there are some things that can help. And I think community services, various forms of supervision that people can make use of, apps, whatever, sort of common sense ways of helping people to navigate, would be the best we can do. But the notion that we're about to find a new, let's say, pharmacological treatment is poppycock. Uh, The most effective pharmacological agent ever discovered was discovered in the 1940s. That's lithium for mania. Uh, The most effective antipsychotic was discovered in 1969. The most effective antidepressants were in the six in the sixties also, uh, and if you look at all these new drugs that are announced, they're virtually all tweaks of an old ju- drug. There are virtually no new psychiatric, and I will go so far to say, no new genuinely new psychiatric drugs in the pipeline. And the reason is because we don't understand the relationship between the brain and abnormal mental behavior. We just don't understand it. And the drug companies are not going to go on fishing expeditions, throw billions at somebody's theory that has no empirical support and no good understanding.
2: Professor Morris, you're, ta- you're talking a lot of here about access. And I, I'd like to turn to you, Professor Schlanger, um, and get kind of your thoughts on access to mental health treatment. Um, as a former public defender myself, I, I saw clients struggle with access to mental health care, medications and treatment while incarcerated. I'd see individuals released in the middle of the night or on the weekend with no supply of medication, no way to access their treatment provider until Monday. Can you talk a bit about this? What are your thoughts about access to mental health care? What needs to change and, and can it change?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So there's, a, there's a, a bunch of different sub-questions buried in there. So one is when people are in prison and, and jail, And, and um, as we keep saying, these are, these are different kinds of places, but when they're in there, are they getting the treatment that they need? And the answer is, you know, sometimes, but far less often than one would like. Um, And that's for a variety of reasons. It has to do with the scarcity of non-medical, non-medication therapies on the inside, where you can ask Stephen, who's much better equipped to speak to this than I am. But my understanding is that, you know, that's a part of what we think of as the community standard. um, And and there's a lot of evidence base for that. And yet we don't really offer non-medication therapies inside jails or prisons. Number 2 is we have these limited formularies inside jails and prisons and so people who have spent a pretty long time adjusting their meds until they actually have something that you know some, can work for them often can't actually get that same that same set of pharmaceutical interventions, much less the people who haven't yet figured out what the right pharmaceutical interventions are. Like there's just no process for really figuring that out in most, certainly in most jails and in in many, many, many prisons. Um, And then a third issue, which has to do with the enormous stressors that incarceration puts on people whose resilience is, you know, some people are resilient enough to deal with almost anything, and most of us are not. And and being incarcerated is extraordinarily stressful and can be um, anti-therapeutic in a variety of ways that really matter. And then a fourth one is when people get out, the connections between um, the inside and the outside. And every everybody who thinks about medical or mental health care knows that handoffs are the most dangerous moment in in every way, right? Midnight at the hospital or July when the new residents come or, you know, when people move or whatever. Handoffs are the most dangerous moment. And um, especially from jails, but also like deeply from prisons, those handoffs are not handled very well. We have, we have decided in most states that the medical and mental health care on the inside is going to be um, as disconnected as we can possibly make it from medical and mental health care on the outside, including things like cutting people off the Medicaid rolls, which is just crazy. Um, and so we make it as hard as possible for people to get continuity of care. And even there's, and, and then we send them off with you know maybe like one injection of a medicine so it's supposed to be long-lasting and then and and hand them 20 bucks and tell them to have a great life and then i mean who could possibly be surprised when that goes wrong
2: great points so you you raise a lot of difficult issues here i just want to turn professor morris do you have any thoughts or follow-up on that well, i think it's, it's
3: absolutely right i have one wonderful anecdote uh, a client of mine was sprung on habeas and we got him on exactly the right drug for him. Even though these drugs are only effective, majorly effective about a third of the time for psychotic illness, this guy was a poster child. No side effects and he was completely normal. Then he had to go back to prison. This was in the California state system. And he was put into an evaluation unit and they put him back on a drug we knew wouldn't work. And And we said to the people, look, we'll pay for the drug that works ourselves don't try a 6 week trial of the generic put them on this and they refused
1: it's so much unnecessary pain
3: uh, it's absolutely
1: so much unnecessary pain
3: and i, I would stress that the, uh, the the margo's point about psychosocial rehabilitation methods is very very important that was stressed by tom insel as a famous psychopharmacologist said now 50 years ago in a very influential article you know If you take medication and it works for you, you may regain touch with reality, but it's not going to teach you how to balance your checkbook, how to hold a job down, how to negotiate with people in the community that requires a fair amount of psychosocial rehabilitation. And there's virtually none of that in prisons. And there is none of it in jails, including, as I told you, in half the jails in the United States, there's no mental health treatment whatsoever.
2: A number of times I saw exactly what you're talking about as, as a public defender. I mean more more times than I than I would like to remember. So thank you for the, those comments.
0: Yeah, Stephen if I if you don't mind I'd like to, to, to drill down on a couple of legal issues that have implications here and then follow up with a, an important issue for 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 Margot and and a more general issue. So the 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 specific issue is people who are brought into who are brought into the system. We have various ways in which mental health or mental health standards will be at issue. It it may be uh, informal at charging. It may be more formal in terms of competence, right? There, of course, we just talked about uh, the uh, mental disease or defect standard at trial. We talk about issues of a mental illness after someone has been convicted and sentenced, perhaps. And then, of course, there are at the back end, although a small number of cases, one that nonetheless raises a lot of uh, national attention and some some moral philosophizing, which is the issues about mental health uh, and execution. So with all that said, do you, looking at the system, is our system set up in the way that that it should be uh, to deal with the varieties of mental health and the standards as people progress through the system and are brought through it, whether they like it or not?
3: As I understand the question is, what could we be doing better to address the cases involving mental disorder in every one of these steps? And I think what we could do, be doing better is having better representation and better experts to help us. And very often the resources for that are not there. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, most of the legal doctrine, or much of it, is okay on its face. It's all in the operation. And the operation is typically because the details of how it's being applied are not good, or there aren't sufficient. Uh, experts or sufficiently good lawyers to help people prosecute the case. So again, I think it's a more general solution, which is better representation, better experts, and the courts need to step in. So for example, as I said before, uh, talking about Ake against Oklahoma in that line of cases, it's outrageous to me that the mental health expert appointed To examine the defendant who has a colorable mental state issue raised by mental disorder can be a state appointed or a state employee, psychiatrist or psychologist. They need a completely independent psychologist or psychiatrist. I mean, the state employee is just like the prosecutor, a state employee and a member of the executive slash administrative branch. I just think that's outrageous.
0: Yeah, I, I hear two things going on at the same time. One is that, of course, there are these these problems, these institutional problems in the way way that it's set up. There is, uh, I, I think, we're agreement that a lot of discussion in scholarly works about the issues, standards at various stages, and then of course experts like yourself are 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 combining it with reality that maybe it's a lot of discussion about things that um, maybe not dis- distraction, but are really focusing the attention uh, from where it should be, and and that brings up. A series of questions about kind of the 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 next steps and you you raised us a bit on the issues with regards to reentry, and um i'd like to turn turn to margot again if you don't if, if you don't mind uh, i know you are concerned not only about the treatment of those behind bars uh, but those who are released and and you have have spoken about uh beginning the process of reentry, maybe even as begin as early as as when they first step into uh uh, uh confinement uh, but certainly well before they uh, end up uh, being released. What what are your thoughts in terms of the programs that are likely to be successful, the things that we should be doing, uh, and then the things maybe that have been been failures and um, are not representative of the better angels in trying to uh, help people succeed?
1: So the the part of this question that I've sort of spent the most time thinking about is not so much what programs, how can we teach people in prison better to deal with the the pressures and um, uh, issues that they're gonna face on the outside. That's not something that I'm very expert in. But what I I do know is that um, we could build institutional bridges that are all about making the journey from inside to outside Um, a less discontinuous one. So for example, uh, in jails in particular, we could have, for people who are getting their healthcare from public institutions, which is a lot of people, those people could have medical records that go with them when they go in and out of jail so that they're, and they could even see the same doctors in some circumstances. We could do away with the exclusion from Medicaid of um, people who are imprisoned. I mean, this it's not as if they're paying for their own um, health care, right? The, the state pays for their health care when they're in prison. The federal government pays for their health care mostly when they're on Medicaid. It just doesn't make any sense. Like that switch doesn't make any sense. But doing away with that exclusion would provide for a continuity of care that would be extraordinarily beneficial. People have their first set of several different kinds of appointments made for them or made with them, made by them, but they're given access to you know, phones and and, uh, the ability to look things up on the internet and they can like make those appointments while they're on the inside so that when they get out, they can um, immediately kind of have that stuff set up. Even things like giving people IDs right? Making sure that they have a valid ID when they leave prison, because people who are in prison for a long time, their driver's license has expired if they had one, right? Leaving with an ID is tremendously beneficial. So I can't speak to the question of, you know, does criminal thinking errors work? I have no idea, really. It's not something that I've studied. But I can tell you that, that bridging institutions has been shown to be very, very effective and is relatively low cost compared to some of that rehabilitative programming. But even when it's not low cost, it's very, very effective.
2: Professor Slinger, I'd like to to shift now to another very important issue, which is solitary confinement. This is a controversial practice instituted many jails, uh, prisons, forensic mental health hospitals around the country. And, And there's lots of conflicting studies on this topic. Can you talk uh, give our audience a bit of information about some of the proposals out there to deal on this with this issue?
1: Sure. Sure. But I I want to just take issue with one part of the question which is I don't think there are a lot of conflicting studies on this. I think that almost um, not quite all so so there are some conflicting studies but but generally speaking almost all the evidence points in one direction which is that solitary confinement is very very damaging to the people who who are subjected to it. Now, that doesn't answer the question, is it worth it? Right? Um, that's, that's not a question for doctors. But but to the extent that doctors and psychiatrists and mental health experts have studied solitary confinement, they find uniformly that it's all but uniformly, that it's very, very bad for the people who are subjected to it. Solitary confinement is the practice of putting people in small cells. They're about as big as a small parking space or about as big as a small bathroom. Um, And leaving them there, the amount of time varies, but generally speaking, people talk about it as 23 seven. So 23 hours a day, seven days a week. And when they get out, um, I don't, this is, this is an audio podcast, so I can't show you the picture, but when they get out, they tend to go to yards that are a different space. That's the size of a small Bathroom, but maybe with a little bit of a view of the sun, something like that. Those are solitary yards. So solitary confinement is not always; it it can be sensorily deprived. Some of them actually, you know, have um, like just very little to look at. They almost all have almost nothing to do. The features vary across different states. In some states, you know, people who are in solitary confinement have windows. In some states, they don't. In Lots of states, um, they don't have access to very much by way of reading material or television. Some states allow people who are in solitary to have TV. So, you know, those kinds of things vary. But what they have in common is that they deprive humans who are social animals of social interactions the way that human beings need to thrive. And um, some systems do this for kind of at the drop of a hat, but for very short periods of time, some systems do it still pretty easily, but for much longer and some systems it's hard to get into solitary but even harder to get out. Um, and so you'll have people who are in solitary for years and years and years because solitary confinement is so anti therapeutic people tend to misbehave more when they're in it, which is not what you know like economists would predict right because if they were predicting rational action, but people tend to misbehave a lot when they're in it. And so what starts off as say a 90 day seg term, then they do something boneheaded and now it's another 90 days and then another thing. And now we're up to a year and then another thing. And now we're at three years and so on. It ratchets in a pretty significant way in many systems. So the evidence is really clear that it's anti-therapeutic. The, in one of the most important of the judicial um, treatments of solitary confinement in a case called Madrid versus Gomez, Felton Henderson, District Judge Felton Henderson said that putting somebody with mental illness into solitary confinement is like putting somebody who is asthmatic into a, a place with limited air. So it's particularly anti therapeutic for people who have um, psychiatric disorders, and they tend to do very, very badly there. There's been a trend in recent years to limit the populations who can go into solitary to say, for example, nobody who has a serious mental illness diagnosed or nobody nobody who's pregnant. It's very bad for pregnant women not to be able to move around more and to have the sort of stress level of solitary confinement or solitary confinement actually for people who are geriatric, you know, in that kind of use it or lose it kind of mode of, of being that, um, alas, we all get to at some point in our aging, it's very, very, very bad for them. And so there have been some moves to try to say, if you're over 50, um, it's not a good idea and so on. So there have been some special populations things. There's also been some moves to try to say, no more than a certain amount of time. It's tended to be a very long period of time, but no more than a certain amount of time. Internationally, the international community kind of ideas about this are... uh, quite a bit more muscular than that. They tend to say that if you're in solitary confinement for more than two weeks, that it is um, cruel inhuman, and degrading. There have also been some ideas of, well, maybe we could do what's basically solitary confinement, but soften it. So instead of it being 23-7, what if it's 21-7? What if we give people three hours a day out of cell? Is that still just as bad? And so, you know, um, there have been some ideas about like keep the basic institution intact, but soften it in various ways. So there's a lot of movement. Um, in the past five or eight years, there's some evidence that the number of people in solitary at any given time has gone down by 10 or 20,000. That's, you know, um, that's pretty significant. I'm not, I'm talking about before the COVID change in the numbers of incarceration. There's no post COVID data on this, this is all pre COVID. Um, of course, because of COVID, in some prisons, everybody's in solitary confinement. One of the things that's happened in in because of COVID in prisons with cells is that people have been locked down for months and months and months on end. And in some ways of thinking about it, that means everyone's in seg. So, so whatever progress was made pre-COVID, it's it's we don't have any way of assessing it right now. But but that's the basic idea. I I, I don't know if. I've spent a good deal of my energy and, and, and um, advocacy trying to reduce the use of solitary confinement, which I think is certainly almost always a bad idea and perhaps always a bad idea. But almost always is, to, to my mind, almost a no brainer.
2: Professor Morris, I just want to turn to you and, and see if you have any thoughts or follow up on uh, solitary confinement, some of the proposals out there, and, and the, the wonderful uh, Professor Schlanger
3: gave us once again i agree with everything that professor schlanger said uh one can feel a certain sympathy for uh the people who have to manage the inmates or patients in these maximum security institutions some of whom can be incredibly violent and even by the best psychological methods in the world the best interpersonal methods with sensitive guards They just can't be controlled. So what do you do about them? Well, there've got to be other solutions than solitary because as I'm fond of saying, solitary is not good for growing things, including adult prisoners. So I think one possibility is a chemical solution, as it were. There are medications we can give people that have some costs, including some potential side effects, that can gentle people and now would i give these involuntarily no i think in that in those situations and i would want the prisoner represented by a lawyer before this was ever done i would give the prisoner a choice you either have to go into solitary if he can't calm down or we're going to give you this medication and so that's one potential solution to avoid uh, to avoid solitary and yet to maintain prison safety and discipline. Because these really out of control violent folks, they're a danger to other prisoners, they're a danger to the staff, and sometimes we're at our wit's end, as Margot knows, with what to do about them. So I try to think of what alternatives could we conceivably come up with. And the best I can do for the moment is really some kind of psychopharmacological gentling. Because there is some evidence that. Some drugs that are used best for other purposes have a gentling effect. It's off label, but worth a try. So that's a suggestion but, I would make.
1: But the the out of the sixty or eighty thousand people who are in solitary today, right this minute, and not just solitary for a day or two, but who are in relatively long term solitary. That's sixty or eighty thousand people right now. The number who fit what Steven is describing is very, very small. Most, mostly when you walk a solitary unit, which, you know, I've done, I don't know, 20 times, 30 times, um, maybe 50 times. Mostly when you walk a solitary unit, what you see is people who are dysfunctional in various ways or who for some reason they're having, Repeated uh, conflicts with the staff, not always because they're dysfunctional people. Sometimes it has to do with some other kinds of dynamics. But but a lot of them are just like they're just they're not coping with the prison environment, and um and the the administration is responding to that by locking them in cages. And it's not that they need gentling. They 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 need they need us all. To remember that they are human beings. I don't. I don't. I don't mean that in a personal way. I don't. I don't mean like there's a particular staff member who's dehumanizing them. That's not really the point I'm making. They need us to commit as a polity to treating them like human beings, even when that's kind of a pain, and s- sucking up that pain and saying we're going to do it anyway.
3: Solitary is, is a too easy solution to exactly the problems that uh, Margo identified. And I happen to agree with her her diagnosis of the numbers. Probably the people who are really violent actors and not much more are very few.
2: Professor Morris, you you brought up this interesting point of of giving a a choice between solitary or medication. And I'm, I'm trying to think back on the numbers, hundreds of hundreds of clients I've represented that might be faced with a similar choice. And I'm really racking my brain to come up with what would they choose? What do you think?
3: I really don't know. I mean, I, I, mean, it would have to be explained to them in detail, exactly what the effects of the drugs were going to be, what the side effects were likely to be. And I think you'd also have to disclose to them if they had no experience of solitary confinement, just the sort of data that, that Margot was talking about, that look, people who go into solitary become less functional. And you're likely to get in more trouble, not less, if you go into solitary. So I think if they're absolutely fully informed and they're represented, I don't know what they would choose. I could tell you what I would choose. I would choose the medication in a, in a nanosecond uh, because it's not gonna knock me out. I'm not gonna become a zombie. I'm just gonna become gentled, as it were. But again, that's a small number of people, as Margo says.
1: I, I'm. I've, I've agreed with everything that Stephen has said up to this proposal, which um, I've never thought about before. So maybe maybe I'll change my mind. But I have to say that my civil libertarian heart. I mean, I'm, I'm just I, I'm resisting this proposal.
3: I understand that uh, it, it, it is a sort of civil liberties nightmare. But again, you what the fear is, is that the prisoners will be sort of coerced into medication when they don't need medication. That is a problem, but as long as we had the system in place, and this may be the, a, a complete tooth theory hypothesis, as long as we had the system in place where we could be sure this was an appropriate case and everybody was fully informed, then I think it actually increases liberty because it gives people a choice they wouldn't otherwise have. But since it's a tooth theory hypothesis, I think the civil liberties nightmare is just too strong so I agree with Mark, it can't be done unless the system changes. Uh,
0: fair enough. And we'd have to think of the Miranda warnings we'd have to give. So uh, just to wrap things up, I'd like to get two, two of the nation's leading experts here um, in these topics. We've seen mental health becoming uh, a less taboo subject in, in our country, perhaps being expedited by the pandemic and, people have, and the suffering that people have, have experienced. Uh, and yet it still is to some extent ignored with regards to criminal justice. Not by the experts, but sometimes uh, by policymakers, and maybe not recognized by the public. Um, what can those in the know? What can lawyers, academics, uh, criminal justice actors? What can be done to uh, alleviate this 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 disparity in understanding? And what do you see on the horizon um, as we move forward, Margot, and then Stephen?
1: I really feel like like I'm I'm just going to repeat something that I said before. I feel like the revelation we need. Is the revelation that we don't have to deal with um, mental illness with a criminal justice response. We have a choice and we can do something different. And I feel like rather than saying how can the criminal justice system deal better with mental illness, it's not, I don't know that this ends up being all that different in terms of the policy takeaway, but I prefer to ask it, how can we deal with mental illness and minimize the role of the criminal justice system in that, um, in that response? Now, I'm not Pollyanna-ish enough to think that that would mean that nobody with mental illness goes to prison. Right. We're still going to need the prisons to provide and the jails to provide humane um, community standard mental health treatments. And that's a really important thing. But uh, but I think if we could attack the problem before jails and prisons and before arrests and before trials, I really think that's the answer.
3: Stephen, do you have any thoughts on on that? Once again I agree entirely. Uh, Within the criminal justice system itself, and now I am repeating myself again, I would like to see the doctrines work the way they're supposed to work, and uh, I think it's up to the reformers like Margot and me to try to make the system better by explaining why particular doctrines or particular systemic operation of various stages along the way isn't fair, Uh, but A really important issue, I think, is what mental health services prisoners in jails and prisons are entitled to. Now, the only Supreme Court precedent on this really is Estelle against Gamble, which had to do with medical needs of a prisoner, and by extension, psychiatric needs would be medical, said there's no constitutional violation unless there's deliberate indifference to the prisoner's needs. Now, that is a very, very low standard. Look, people in prison and jails can't be expected to get the same sort of treatment, presumably the four of us could get if we went into the open market. But they are, I think, entitled to minimally adequate services. And what they are getting in prisons is not minimally adequate for the most part. And in jails, it is never minimally adequate. So that is a major innovation in mental health that would force the states to spend the resources they just don't want to. I mean, who wants to spend money on people who commit crimes? You know, can't do the time, don't commit the crime, et cetera. Well, that's just wrong. We need to take care of people in prison if they need taken care of. Well, that brings us to the end of our time today.
0: Terrific discussion. We want to thank our guests for uh, bringing a a really important topic uh, to the fore in Mental Health uh, Month this month, May. I want to thank Stephen Morse, the Ferdinand wakeman Hubble Professor of Law, Professor of Psychology and Law and Psychiatry, and Associate Director of the Center for Neuroscience and Society at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. And Margot Schlanger, the Wade H. and Doris M. McCree, Collegiate Professor of Law at the University of Michigan Law School. Thanks also to my co-host, uh, Ashley, and our uh, producer, Amina Ketchin kamel this product is a service of the Accounting for Justice at Arizona State University's Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. I'm Eric Luna, and this has been Measured Justice.